Our scripture reading this afternoon is taken from the book of Joshua. We're going to read Joshua chapter 4 and pay particular attention to verses 19 through 24 where Joshua, in a manner of speaking, preaches a bit of a sermon to summarize what the Lord is doing and what it all means. Joshua chapter 4. Joshua chapter 4, beginning at the first verse, let us listen now to this word the Lord speaks to us. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, And bring them over with you and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded and took up twelve stones out of the midst of the Jordan according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, just as the Lord told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. And Joshua set up twelve stones in the midst of the Jordan in the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. For the priests bearing the Ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people according to all that, the, that Moses had commanded Joshua. The people passed over in haste. And when all the people had finished passing over the ark of the covenant of the Lord, and the priests passed over before the people, the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh passed over armed before the people of Israel as Moses had told them. About 40,000 ready for war passed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. And the Lord said to Joshua, Command the priests bearing the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests, Come up out of the Jordan. And when the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan and the soles of the priests' feet were lifted up on dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. The people came up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. 
And he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know, Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. May the Lord bless this reading and our, our hearing of his word this afternoon. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, one of the interesting things about the record in the book of Joshua of Israel's entrance according to God's promise into the promised land through the river Jordan under the leadership of Moses' successor Joshua, one of the interesting things is you have a kind of double representation of Israel's entrance. You get a good deal of preparation already, an account of the crossing in chapter 3. And then there's some repetition and the conclusion of the story in terms of Israel's actual entrance. But without going into any great detail, it's very clear that the inspired author, Joshua's account, is intended to fix our attention not only, and perhaps even not so much only, upon Israel's entrance into the promised land when the river Jordan ran in the springtime at flood stage and the Lord led them through as the Ark of the Covenant held up in the midst of the river by the Levitical priest representing the Lord God, the Lord of all the earth, leading his people, providing for his people, granting them the promised inheritance of the land. But what the author is most especially interested in is the question, will Israel remember? And he goes into great detail to describe the means God appointed, a monument of 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel, each stone carried by one representative of the 12 tribes and piled up near Gilgal at the border threshold of the promised land that Israel would not forget what the Lord had done. Now, if you think about that, that's a little strange. How could they not forget or not remember, rather? I mean, imagine... If you had a man among the company of Christ's church, led by that Joshua, whose name means the Lord says, who is a type of the greater than Joshua, Joshua, Jesus, the one who saves, who brings us into our inheritance as we pass through the waters of judgment. And he rises triumphant in his resurrection. If you had been there, boys and girls one of the families of one of the tribes of the people of Israel, and you had witnessed what they witnessed, surely you say to yourself, 
I would never forget. It's not possible that an event so momentous, a triumph of God's grace so grand, a display of his steadfast faithfulness of the God who keeps covenant forever, my children and my children's children would remember it and carry it with them to the grave, right? Well, probably not. As a matter of fact, God knew his people Israel like the back of his hand. He knows you and me as members of the New Covenant Church who have seen greater things than Moses or Joshua or the people of Israel as they enter the promised land. And we forget before we've walked ten steps out of church what we've seen and heard in the sanctuary. You know, it's interesting, just by way of analogy, think about means of remembrance. I don't know if I'm talking to any people here this afternoon who've forgotten one of their children's birthdays. What about it, boys and girls? It was late in the afternoon and mom, dad remembered it, or you remembered it. What if, are there any husbands here this morning, or this afternoon, this evening? Can't get that straight, because I worship typically later in the day. Is it afternoon? Yes, it is, not evening. Are there any husbands here who, oh, mid-afternoon, you say to yourself, on the day of your wedding, it's anniversary, now I'm going to make amends with my wife. How am I going to explain myself at this juncture? Now, ask yourself, how important was it that this loved one of yours was born? Pretty important. They wouldn't be but for the day of their birth. That's a day worth at least an annual celebration. What about your marriage? And yet we forget. So sometimes we have to put it on our cell phone calendar. Sometimes we have to tie a a string around our finger. Sometimes if you're in school, when I was a little lad, we would write something on our hand lest we forget it. What is my point? My point is God's people, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, needs God to provide them, as he did Israel, with means of remembrance. And the whole account in chapter 4 of Joshua calls to our attention how he did so at this great moment in redemptive history under the Old Testament economy. Now, two things that I would like us to consider together this afternoon. Firstly, what exactly was Israel to remember? What's the significance of what happened? When Israel crossed the Jordan under the leadership of Joshua, Moses' successor, and entered into, by God's grace and power, the land that he had promised to give them as their inheritance in his covenant. What's its significance? The second thing is, we want to look together at how he provided the means he provided Israel so as to keep alive in her memory his great work of redemption through Joshua. Now, you might say as to the first point, Dr. Venema, that can be dealt with very quickly. Well, you don't know me very well if you think it can be dealt with quickly. But uh, you could say, well, it's the event 
of Israel's crossing the Jordan and entering the promised land. That's what they had to remember. But let's ask a little bit deeper, what's the significance of this event? And it has at least four strands or dimensions within the context of the unfolding of God's redemptive purposes at this moment in the course of redemptive history. And the first is this. It is a dramatic culminating demonstration that God, when he makes a promise to his people, nothing but nothing, no matter how many years may pass, will prevent him or deter him or in any way cause him not to do even as he has spoken. Because you know, if you study this history, and I hope you boys and girls are studying this history, whether in Christian school or in Sunday school catechism or in the hearing of the word of God as it's ministered from this pulpit from week to week, it's a marvelous thing that some 430 years, think Galatians and what Paul says there, after the promise made to Abraham, the father of the community of God's covenant people, and then to Jacob and Isaac and those who came after them, God had swallow, solemnly sworn by himself, that he would give to them a land flowing with milk and honey, that he would cause them to be fruitful and multiply, that through the seed of Abraham there would come blessing to all the nations. But think about all the history between that original promise and it's at this point in history the beginning of its fulfillment. Finally, they are entering the land. Did Abraham enter the land? Did any of the forefathers ever come to take possession of the land? How many years did they spend in exile? Or in, not exile, but in bondage to Pharaoh in Egypt? Well, I've already given you the number, round number, 430 years. And even in the period between Israel's, by God's outstretched arm, deliverance from captivity in Egypt until her entrance at this moment in history into the promised land, a great deal of history has unfolded. Most of it's characterized by unbelief on Israel's part by stubbornness and murmuring, complaining, lamenting what God had done, doubting that God would do it or fulfill his promise. You know the story. Not long after God had marvelously delivered Israel from Egypt and as they made their way to the promised land, Pharaoh, relenting of his permission that they should go, comes after them with his chariots. And how do the children of Israel respond to that? They say, well, our God will prevail. He has promised. He will do it. Nothing can stay his hand. He's demonstrated his great and glorious power against Pharaoh and all his hosts. No, that's not what they said. Matter of fact, if you read the account in the book of 
Exodus, you'll discover that their first response upon seeing Pharaoh and all his hosts coming after them as they approach the Red Sea, were there no places for us to be buried in Egypt? That God has brought us out here into the wilderness that we should die at the hand of Pharaoh and all his hosts? Were there no graves where we could be buried in the land of Egypt? Certainly there were. It would have been better for us to remain in Egypt and serve the Egyptians. What does the Lord do at the Red Sea? He destroys Pharaoh and all his hosts and delivers his people Israel. And they sing a song of praise to his power and grace. But when they approach the promised land, under the leadership of Moses, having seen what they've seen thus far, having been delivered by God's outstretched arm from Pharaoh's bondage and their slavery in Egypt, having seen again at the Red Sea the triumph of God's power and grace toward his covenant people to whom he had made a promise that he would bring them up and bring them to the land he had promised them, spies were sent out into the land before the people. And they came back and they reported that there were many people And that they were a powerful people. And they were opposed to Israel's entrance into the land. And how do the people of Israel respond at this point? Typically, as a matter of fact. It's characteristic of their response to these types of circumstances. The author of Hebrews says they didn't mix into their hearing of the gospel that came to them through Joshua and Caleb that the land was theirs for the taking. It will be literally, the idiom in Hebrew is, it'll be a piece of cake because God is on our side. We needn't tremble in the presence of these peoples, these nations, the Amorites, the Gergesites, the Hittites, and all manner of other kinds of ites, peoples. That there are Anakim there. Well, we read in Numbers chapter 13 the following. The people murmured in their tents because the Lord hates us. He's brought us out of the land of Egypt. He intends to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Their people are greater and taller than we are. The cities of this Land are great and fortified to heaven. And moreover, they have among them these powerful Anakim. The odds are against us. God's cause and our cause is lost. It's defeated. God may have said one thing, but he, even he, will not do it. So the point of it all is this. When Joshua at the end of the chapter says, when your children ask their fathers in time to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know. Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over. 
as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea when he dried it up for us until we passed over. You see, the whole book of Joshua in one sense can be summarized in one verse. It's Joshua 21 verse 45. Listen to this. Not one word of all the good promises. Not one word. Not one promise that God made to his people Israel, that the Lord made to the house of Israel, had failed. They all, despite humanly speaking, formidable, even apparently impossible odds, it came to pass. Brothers and sisters, if you think about that, if I might fast forward to the New Testament, our Lord Jesus Christ, greater than Joshua, the true Savior of his people, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. No promise made to us in Christ will ever fail to be fulfilled. That's what this day meant for Israel under that circumstance in which she found herself. Our God is a God who keeps covenant. He doesn't go back upon his word. He sealed it to us by the blood of his own son. By the blood, says the author of Hebrews, of how old a covenant. By the blood of an eternal covenant. No promise. Not one. Peace with God. The forgiveness of your sins. Your acceptance with God. Your renewal in righteousness by his outpoured spirit. Your inheritance in that new and better country to which this land was but a kind of earthly foreshadowing. Nothing will prevent. All, says Paul, of God's promises find their yes and their amen in Christ. That's the first thing that Israel was never to forget. The second thing is, very briefly, One of the themes in all of this is Joshua is Moses' mediator or successor as mediator of the covenant. In the previous chapter and at the opening of the book of Joshua, the Lord makes it very clear, Joshua is my chosen servant. He is the one I have appointed. I will be with him the same way I was with Moses. He will succeed in all that to which I have called him. And did you notice in the middle of the chapter, we're reminded as this event unfolds, verse 14, on that day, the day of Israel's crossing the Jordan, on that day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel and they stood in awe of him just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. God is with him. God is acting in and through him. God will give him success in all that to which God has called him. It vindicates 
that Joshua indeed is the one through whom God will realize his purposes at this moment in granting Israel the land he had promised to give them. There's another thing, a third thing Israel was to remember. Do you notice if you read chapter 3, it's already told us that when the Lord reiterates the promise to Moses of his success, on two separate occasions, he identifies himself as the Lord of, the, of all the earth. Why does God choose to lead Israel across the Jordan at just this time? When, as we're told in chapter 3 and 4, the Jordan River is running at full flood stage. I even think there's almost a humorous suggestion that it was a difficult and arduous thing calling for Israel to act in faith when it says that they hurried across. They didn't linger as the waters were held up by God's power at Adam, the place called Adam, as we're told in chapter 3. But there's a, there's a contest going on here, brothers and sisters. Who is God? Who has the right of disposal? To whom does the whole of creation belong, including this promised land God is giving his people Israel? Well, the Lord of all the earth, the God of all the nations and peoples, the one alone who is true and living God. These gods of the Amorites and the Girgashites and the Hittites and the Jebusites, the Balaam and the Asheroth, these fertility gods, these little gods who supposedly cause the rains to fall, the flood stage to arise, who are the gods who provide bread and water upon the table, who are the gods worshipped by these peoples in the land that Israel is given as a rightful inheritance, there are no gods. Our God the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Christ who is Jesus, the one who saves, who fulfills all God's promises, who secures our inheritance. He alone is God, and the world belongs to him. And he will grant to his people the land. Interestingly, our Lord in the Sermon on the Mount says the meek the citizen of God's kingdom who looks to the Lord, waits upon the Lord, trusts in his promises, they're the ones who will inherit what? Quoting Psalm 37, the earth, the new heavens and the new earth, the whole of the new creation will be theirs. This is a demonstration, says Joshua at the end of chapter 4, the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan. He's the Lord of all creation. He does as is suits his good pleasure. The Lord your God did, did this just as he did to the Red Sea when he dried up for us until we passed over so that all the peoples, not just Israel, but all the peoples, tribes, tongues, nations, may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. One last thing 
I said there were four things here. Not only God is a God of his promise that he keeps, he's faithful. He's a God who declares Joshua to be the servant whom he's appointed to accomplish his good purposes. He's the God of all creation who has the right of disposal to grant to his people whatsoever he has promised them as their rightful inheritance. It's also the case that he's a God of grace. Did you notice that we're told in verse 19, it was on the 10th day of the first month that they came up out of the Jordan. Why the 10th day of the first month? Well, the Lord had promised at the first Passover and at the crossing and deliverance of Israel at the Red Sea that they would celebrate the Passover again. They could be sure of this in the promised land. And it was on the 10th day of the first month that the Passover lamb is selected and then slain. And the first thing you're told in the next chapter is that Israel celebrated the Passover. The Lord is doing all of this for his people because he's a God not only of faithfulness to his promise, but he's a God of all grace who provides the lamb whose blood removes and averts the condemnation death that would otherwise befall them. He delivers them by his grace, by the lamb he provides. Now that brings me just to say a few things about the second thing. If that's what this event represented and was what Israel was to remember, God says to keep that alive in your memory, I want this monument of 12 stones to be set up. And you say to me, well, Dr. Venema, you can be brief with that because we have a monument of 12 stones here at the Emmanuel United Reformed Church in Jordan, Niagara Peninsula. At least I don't think you do. So that's Old Testament and it had nothing to do with the New Testament church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let me remind you of something. What day of the week is this? The first day of the week. It's Memorial Day. It's the day that God has consecrated to the remembrance of the victory of our Joshua, risen from the dead ascended to the Father's right hand, having poured out his spirit in power and abundance upon the church on the first day of the week. So we begin our week with Remembrance Day. We want all of our life to be lived under the canopy of the reality of Christ our Joshua having been put to death for our sins, having been raised the first fruits of the new creation for our justification. And why the Lord's Day? So that his name might be declared. The powerful works that he's accomplished for you and my for yours and my redemption might be recounted in our hearing so that together we might remember and not forget. If you lose the Lord's Day, brothers and sisters, the memory of what Christ has done 
will die. It'll die in the heart and mind of your children and your, certainly your children's children. We come into the presence of the Lord on this Remembrance Day, this day that is a signpost of the beginning of new creation life, to be reminded of what to keep alive, to have kept alive in us, a remembrance of what Joshua, our Lord Jesus Christ, has done. And it was Voltaire, a French atheist opponent of the gospel, who rightly said, steal from the church the Lord's day, and the gospel will fall silent in France within a hundred years. And so fathers, mothers, remember your Joshua and his day and bring your children. Notice all the language here about the children asking their parents. What's the meaning of this monument? Tell me, dad, mom, glad you asked. Let me tell you. The Lord has appointed the ministry of the word, but not only the ministry of the word, sacraments. Do this, it probably says at the table there, in remembrance of me. And you say to yourself, as I suggested earlier in the sermon, well, who could possibly forget that the Son of God entered our world, assumed our flesh, humbled himself even unto death, the death of the cross. How could I or my children ever forget that? Well, you forget it before you've even thought about it very long. And so you need a table. And your, your parents should be very happy when your children say, Dad, Mom, what about the cup? Why may I not eat or drink the bread? What does it mean? Glad you asked. Such a simple thing. The Lord knows that without it, there's some super spiritual Christians don't need sacraments. They don't know their own hearts, their own weakness, their own inclination to let their mind wander away from the simple reality of the gospel of salvation through our Joshua, who paid a pretty heavy price to purchase your and my inheritance in a new and better country that far outshines this land flowing with milk and honey into which Joshua led the children of Israel. I have a son, three daughters, but I can remember a particular moment in my son's youth when he was rattling off all kind of stuff about what he was following in terms of Major League Baseball. He was a collector of baseball cards. He knew the top ten hitters in both of the leagues. He had all of the statistics. He could rattle them off. And I said, son, that's all well and good. Nothing wrong with hockey. I'm in Canada. Nothing wrong with baseball. All good gifts that we can enjoy as God's people living in God's creation. But, son, would, and I pray God, you'll know the great things that the Lord has done for his people through his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. 
that you'll join the people of God as you grow older and be happy in the presence of others to sing his praise, to celebrate what he's done for us. And I have the inclination and sense, you know, you get to be an old person, and I suppose that's one of our besetting temptations. A little bit of lamenting of how things go, and you get all hand-wringy and distressed about the state of the church and the state of the nation. And, And my impression is that we as God's people are in a season of some bewilderment and discouragement from time to time. We mustn't allow that to prevail. And the best medicine for God's people is to gather with the saints on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, to hear about what Jesus has done for us, what he's going to do, his kingdom come, his kingdom ultimately consummated, and that glorious and grand inheritance that has been purchased for us in and through his saving work. We're a people on the march And like Moses and Joshua and all the saints, the cloud of witnesses who surround us and who have gone before us, we've not yet entered fully into the inheritance. But we want our children and we want our children's children and all God's people. We want our neighbors. We want everyone to know about Joshua. Jesus and the land that he has obtained, the inheritance that is ours in him. And we're going to use whatever means God has given us to keep alive in our memory what our God has done for us in him. May that be the case for all of us. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, We thank you that you are a God who is mindful of our weakness. You appoint means to keep alive in our memory as your people what our Lord Jesus Christ has done. The promises that are ours in his. The certainty of our inheritance. And so may we take hold and make proper use as parents, as members of your church, of those means that we have been given the ministry of your word, the ministry of the sacrament, the celebration of the Lord's Day, to keep alive in our generation, but in the generations coming, if the Lord will, what our Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. We pray this in Jesus' name.